Miguel Nante. Welcome this morning to our English service. We are glad to worship together. Please read the liturgy and follow through with our liturgy. We post it up on Facebook, and pretty soon we're going to be handing those back out to you when you come into the building. But remember, that just guides our worship. Every part of our liturgy has the intention to take us to God, and that is why we give it to you so, so you can follow through with that and help, help, uh, help you in your worship time. Open your Bibles back to John chapter 3. We read this in our scripture reading this, this morning, and we've come to the final part of the chapter. Glad that you've been trekking along with us in the Gospel of John, and I hope that this has been a great moment for you to learn how to do in-depth study of the Word of God. And though we are barely in John chapter 3, it has shown us some great theological truths about God all through the first three chapters. As we move forward, there's going to be some incredible stories or parables that will be mentioned throughout the next couple of chapters up to chapter 12, and then we're going to get into Jesus' final life in his ministry. But these three, cha three chapters have really prepared us for the foundation of what we're going to be reading at the end of this chapter. And so as an introduction, we have come to this point in the gospel where the ministry of John the Baptist comes to an end. However, for John, this is not a sad occasion, rather one of joy and celebration. His entire ministry pointed God's people to the Son. That's what he was supposed to do. Jesus, he pointed towards the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who in turn would then point God's people back to the Father. In this story John's role, and remember when we say John, we have to differentiate between the gospel writer and John the Baptist, comes to an end, but his joy is everlasting. The bridegroom has arrived. Jesus is here, and Jesus is better. Say that with me at your home. Jesus is better. This is going to be true throughout this entire uh, chapter, and it's true for all of us in our entire life. That's why the title, if we are going to title this sermon today, it's The Supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. Jesus is ultimately better. John's ministry, John the Baptist, that is, was done. He pointed at Jesus, and now Jesus takes the lead. John is the best friend of the groom and represents the bride to Christ. Finally, he hands the bride over to Jesus. To highlight the distinct supremacy of Jesus, we are shown comparisons throughout this entire section. We will see Jesus and John being compared and contrasted. But it's important to note that there was never a competition here. It wasn't to see who was better or who was more uh, theological in any moment in the gospel. It's just a fair comparison for us to see in, in, in reality what God has distinctly divided between Jesus and John. We also will come across a comparison with Jesus and the religious system of his day. 
We have, for instance, the Levitical purification systems that we will come across. And how Jesus then will make a person clean. As a matter of fact, you have to ask yourself, how, how will Jesus make you clean? Or how has Jesus made you clean? To help us navigate through this, I want you to write this down so you could have a, a separation, so you could follow us through in this teaching. Uh, to follow through, to, to navigate through this pericope or, or this small section, we'll divide it into four smaller sections. For instance, I'll start off in verse 22 through 24 as an introduction to the baptism of Jesus. And I want you to write verse 25 through 26 as the second part where we will see conflict arise. And I'll explain that a little later. The third section is John's final witness. That's John the Baptist's final witness between verses 27 through 30. And the last section is a glorious section. It is John the Gospel writer's commentary or summary based on everything that we've read up until that point. Those are verses 31 through 36. So my friends, let's get started this morning by jumping in to part one, which are verses 22 through 24, the introduction to the baptism of Jesus. So let's read that once more in verse 22. John chapter 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Two important elements are found in this brief introduction. First of all, Jesus was baptizing. What does that mean? The important note here is that Jesus himself was not baptizing. We know this first by the grammar in the verse. The verb baptizing is found in the imperfect tense which often conveys remoteness or a separateness. What this basically means is that this information is supplemental. It's extra. It's told from a distance. Jesus could have been baptizing or simply standing in the water with his disciples as they continued. Second important aspect of this is because we later find out in John chapter 4 verse 2 that Jesus was not baptizing, but his disciples were. If you want to just turn the page and look at that very quickly, in John chapter 4, verse 2, there's a side note that says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So we know Jesus wasn't necessarily baptizing with those two, important, uh, with those two characteristics there. What we must understand here, however, is the baptism follows in line with John the Baptist's baptism of repentance. Not the baptism that was commissioned later by Jesus Christ after his resurrection, the, the Christian baptism, what you and I have been accustomed to seeing in church. And the duty of this New Testament church, though that's not what Jesus was doing. He was following along the same baptism as John the Baptist. Here it is focused in a transitional form, though. This is between John's water baptism and the future Jesus' spirit baptism. So the main difference in this point in time is Jesus is present. Hence, 
Jesus was baptizing. See, what's important, friends, is as John was preparing the way, he was baptizing. And he was doing this in uh, for baptism of repentance. But Jesus was not yet active. It is at this moment now that we have Jesus active because he is in the, the present moment. He is active in ministry and he is here. Jesus is here. And so baptism now takes on a whole new meaning because Jesus also preaches repentance. The second important element of this introduction is the geography. You always have to pay attention to geography when you read scripture. As you read in verse 22, we see Jesus in the Judean countryside. And in, and in verse 23, we see John at Anon near Salim. As a form of introduction, we also see John, therefore, going or receding into the background. He has moved way north to Anan near Salim, roughly 30 to 40 miles away from where Jesus was baptizing. Jesus is found where? He is found near the Judean countryside. This is near Jerusalem in the south. John has moved north in order to give Jesus a prominent location. He's, Jesus is near the city, the hub. This is like as if John was out in Aurora or out in a, a faraway farm, 30, 40 miles away. It's giving Jesus that primary spot because he knows Jesus is much greater. John's ministry at the beginning of the chapter 1, we see him baptizing in Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is roughly near Jerusalem where Jesus is now baptizing. So by him moving north, John is understanding his role and ministry is coming to an end. And therefore, in this brief section, we see Jesus is greater than John. Jesus' baptism is greater than John's baptism. That's part one of, of the section. Now we go into part two, which are verses 25 through 26. And in here, we have a conflict now arise. Now read with me in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You could feel the sense of, uh, of fear in, in, in this by Thinking, the disciples are thinking that people are, are, are leaving them and abandoning them, going somewhere else. Here, Jesus then is compared to the religious purification system of the day. And we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit more in detail so you understand. This discussion that the disciples were having with a certain Jew revolves around purification, as we read in verse 25. The word katharismos was for the Jews, like in this case, as the, as the Jew mentioned, very cultic or religious in meaning. It represented cleansing from all impurity. For Israel, impurity separated one uh, from God's people or community. 
and from the worship of God themselves. So any unclean person or impure person would automatically be separated from God and from his people. Uncleanliness and Yahweh for Israel are irreconcilable opposites. They do not mix. Impurity, therefore, must be purged out as an abomination. If you read Leviticus chapter 7, verse 19 and 20, you'll see this uh, played out. Leviticus chapter 7, 19 says, Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. Verse 20. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an unclean uncleanness uncleanness is on him that person shall be cut off from his people so therefore you see the severity the importance of being clean in Israel's context in this religious system impurity also was often associated with disease mainly leprosy leprosy rendered a person unclean but one of the duties of the priests and this is important One of the duties of the Levitical priesthood is to pronounce someone clean or unclean. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 13, you'll see this played out. In verse 17, it says, And the priest shall examine him, and if the disease has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce the diseased person clean. He is clean. In verse 20, it's the opposite. And the priest shall look, and if, the, if it appears deeper than the skin, and its hair has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease that has broken out in the boil. All those are graphic de- descriptions of the physical reality. If that is the case, the priest will say, you're clean or you're not. And so therefore, you're separate from the community and separate from the worship of God. Other issues that, re, that regarded people unclean in this context were, for instance, the sexual process, the emission of semen in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 16, that was seen as unclean. Women's menstruation was seen as unclean in chapter 15, verse 19. And any unhealthy discharges from the body in verses 15, in chapters 15, 2 and 25, were also seen unclean. If you encountered a dead body in Numbers chapter 19, that was depicted as unclean. And even Israel's dietary system, the the food that they encountered uh, could be clean or unclean. So this was very strict. So when you see this discussion arise over purification, you begin to understand the weight of Why they were arguing, John and Jesus. And now, what's the issue with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus saying he's cleansing people from their sin? So in the intertestamental period now, just so you can see the gravity and the weight of this uncleanliness concept. So we see that in Israel. And then during the gap of 400 years between the Old and the New Testament period, uh, these rules were heightened or the law was heightened by and made other rules by other people. So other religious leaders came in and made even more rules about purity within the community. They would ceremonially wash their hands before eating. In the Babylonian Talmud, uh, it says, cleanse and sanctify yourself every, 
from every sin and every fault. It was your duty to cleanse yourself from anything. And that's why they ceremonially wash their hands and, and their feet. And a lot of extra uh, ceremonial practices were done. It was the duty of the person, therefore, to sanctify themselves. We get this group called the Essenes in, in picture in the intertestamental period. The Essenes uh, who were even stricter than the Pharisees on matters of purity and purification were those who made extra rules for purity. You believe that? They, it wasn't enough just to wash their hands. It was, they had to make even more rules to keep themselves clean. The Essenes were were basically people that broke away from ordinary life. They, they wanted to live off on their own. And the community size of the Essenes was roughly between 4,000 people. They ended up dying off. But these people were, were the famous Qumran community. It was here near the Dead Sea where, where they gathered far away. They didn't own any property. They didn't own their own money. Everything was communal and everything was shared. But the rules were very strict. It was everyday washing multiple times a day and rigorous study of the Old Testament to keep themselves pure in mind and pure in heart. And their, their name, Essenes, basically mean healers. So they thought that they were going to be the ones that would heal or rid the land of sin through celibacy, through rigorous study of scripture, and through uh, continuous purification rites. These were the people that brought to us in 1947 when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may have seen that on the History Channel, and you may be wondering, well, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, it's the intertestamental period where the Qumran community began to write down all of these extra rules and regulations for their community. So they practiced daily immersions in water, uh, in water pools and imposed this over the entire Qumran community. Those who broke the rules would be excluded from the community forever. So you get to see this rigorous purity coming into play. In the New Testament then, with Jesus, this becomes the central issue between himself and the influences of the Essenes through the Pharisaical system, or the Pharisees. Purification was placed on polar opposites between Jesus and the Pharisees. The focus of the Pharisees was external, just like the Essenes. It was external cleansing and washing and, 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 and making sure one is clean externally. That's why Jesus comes in and says, Blessed are the pure in heart. For the Pharisee to hear that, for the Jew to hear that, one would ask, how do I make my heart clean? Can I wash it? Can I pour water on it? Can I put soap on it? It becomes to us a familiar, uh, familiar verse in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart. We understand it. But to those who are constantly trying to make themselves pure externally, this would boggle the mind. This would kind of make them really like try to figure out what Jesus is really trying to say. And that's why there was so much tension and hatred and bitterness towards Christ. This right here is what the, the Pharisees continuously practiced. The Pharisees had a misguided understanding of purity 
But Jesus makes the issue clear. Even when he preaches, if you look at Mark chapter 7, Jesus preaches in verse 15, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Why? Because they're internal. It doesn't matter how much you bathe. It doesn't matter how much you wash. If you're corrupt on the inside, it doesn't matter. In John's writing in the New Testament, especially in his epistles and in his gospel, even in the book of Revelations, purification then is Christological. This is the Christ that John begins to present. Here, the work of Christ is compared to the religious system. That's why in the introduction between verses 22 through 24, we get the comparison with Jesus and John and both their baptisms. Now we get this comparison between the religious system and religious purity and and the way Jesus advocates for purity. And we see... A complete difference. The work of Jesus Christ is therefore far superior. It is an inner working of purification. It is the blood of Christ, according to the epistle of John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9. It is his blood that purifies us from all of our sin. Not an external ceremonial washing or cleansing. They do not reach the heart. It is also the word of Christ that makes one clean. In John chapter 15, verse 3, it's Christ declaring people clean. He alone can declare that a person is clean. Therefore, he is far superior to the priest from the Levitical system. Remember what we read in in Leviticus that the priest's role, one of their roles was to declare a person clean or unclean? Well, Jesus can not only declare a person clean on the outside, and we see that when he, when he does heal the leper and when he heals the blind person and when he heals the sick, but he declares a person clean on the inside. That is what Jesus does. He alone can do that because he alone is God. Now that Jesus is present, purity is not an issue to be worked for, As in the law, one is declared pure, one is declared righteous in Christ. No more separation then. We aren't kicked out of the community anymore because we sin or because we are impure. We are now in Christ and the Father accepts us because we have deposited our faith in Jesus Christ. So yes, we will sin. Yes, the Christian does fail time and time again. No one here, no pastor is perfect. No one is better than anyone else. We are all sinners, but we are also saints. And one day we will be perfected and sin will no longer have a hold on our lives. But that doesn't mean that we are not pure on the inside for Christ has made us righteous. It wasn't how much we prayed. It isn't how much hours a day we pray. It isn't how much money we give. It isn't how much we do. It isn't something that we have to constantly be working for day in and day out. I have to do this. I have to do that in order for God to accept me. Friends, that's what religion does. 
Christ has already declared his people righteous. Christ has already declared us pure. We rejoice that we are in Christ. I love when the book of Hebrews highlights this important aspect. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's the superiority of Christ. In verse 26 of John chapter 3, we read, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. The disciples are basically telling Jesus, look, they're leaving us. He's, being more, he's more popular now. He's got more followers. What's going to happen to us? Jesus is pinned up by, his, the, by John the Baptist's disciples up against John as if there was a competition. John's disciples reacted with jealousy. Once again, we have the issue of unbelief. They say, he who was with you, to whom you bore witness. To them, Jesus is distant. They don't even mention Jesus by name. And they give the honorific title of rabbi to John. Rabbi in the gospel of John is a term only applied to Jesus, except here, where, his, where John the Baptist's disciples say, no, you're the rabbi. You're our rabbi, showing their allegiance to him. But they are found in this moment in a predicament. The one who their rabbi bore witness to is here. What does that mean now for them? Are they to go and stay with their rabbi? Or are they supposed to go over there with Jesus? John already mentioned he was not. Now he bears witness to who he really is in the next section. See, for John, this, was, this, this shouldn't have been happening because John was always pointing to Jesus. So in this section, what we realize then is Jesus is greater than the religious systems, than the religious way of purification, and again, greater than John. In the beginning, we see in the introduction, we see that Jesus is greater than John and greater than John's baptism. In the second section, we see that Jesus is greater than the religious systems. And now in part three, John the Baptist's final witness about the bridegroom and about his role to the bridegroom. Let's read verses 27 through 30 just to refresh our memory. So this is John commentating on himself. And his role. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent, I was sent before him. The one who has the bride 
is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's, that's the reply John gives to his disciples. John understands his role and purpose. He is not the Christ. He came to point people to him to make a way. This was his calling. And he was satisfied with it because it came from above, as he mentions in verse 27. God had called each of them, Jesus and John, with a specific calling. And John was happy to fulfill his, even though it was a minor role. But it was a calling from God nonetheless. Though his ministry is coming to an end, something that verse 24 reminds us, prior to his imprisonment and eventual beheading, he is content. He is content knowing he is not the main actor in the drama. What a humble perspective of someone with such great popularity at the beginning, knowing that someone is coming to take his place and he is comfortable putting him forward. What an example of humility in John. That is when one person understands their calling in life. Let Christ be greater. Let him take the leading role. The Baptist gives us an internal view of how he saw himself through the wonderful imagery of the wedding. In the Old Testament, Yahweh and Israel are depicted as that of a bridegroom and bride. This concept often represents joy. That's why we see it here in, in, in John chapter 3. It's a joyous, joyous occasion, especially when they are called to worship their great king. Also, God rejoices over his bride. As the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 62, verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. So shall your God rejoice over you. So this concept of wedding, John is very understanding. The, the, he, he is saying this so that it brings people to the correct understanding of his role. He's recalling the, the, the wedding aspect of Israel and, and Yahweh, of their God and, and God's people. Earlier in chapter 2, Jesus brings the celebration and joy to a wedding. If you remember in John chapter 2, when he turns the water into wine. In the New Testament, weddings represent joy. That is why Jesus rejects the concept of fasting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. The bridegroom is here which is Jesus. The wedding is about to start. Everyone is overwhelmed with joy and anticipation. Jesus' own disciples are filled with joy. This again, my friends, in comparison to the ascetic lifestyle of John, who depraved himself of food and lived in the wilderness, who dressed in rags and ate bugs, now the celebration of the bridegroom. It's completely, complete contrast between John and Jesus. Jesus is here and therefore joy is made present because the 
bridegroom has arrived. John understood perfectly that he was not the bridegroom or the groom in our modern context. He would not get any attention in the wedding. The wedding is not about him. In first century weddings, the bridegroom's friend, modern day best man, did play an important role. As Jesus would later say of John, that he is the greatest of all the prophets. The the best man or the bridegroom's friend, as John depicts himself, it would, would typically be the master of the banquet who would make sure everything was in place. The guest list, the entertainment, the food, the, per, the personnel, all of that. He served as a witness and he also contributed financially. I would love to see that in our modern day context in weddings where the best friend gives a couple thousand bucks to the wedding. But that was the role of the best man or the bridegroom. He is eager to see the celebration come to realization. He anticipates the joy of the day. Another important factor here is that he, is, he has no desire for the bride. He says in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The bride is not his. And likewise, the bride is not looking forward to walking down the aisle and seeing the best man at the end in place of the groom. She desires the groom, not the one standing in the background. At the wedding, no one cares about the best man. Yet, he rejoices because the bridegroom is here And he hears his voice. The preparations are over. The pressure is done. He is here. Jesus is here. Likewise, he has served the bride and prepared her to meet the groom. It was also customary to provide assistance to the bride. This included the task of making sure the bride was bathed, wonderfully adorned and dressed and publicly escorted from her father's house. John, as the best friend, not only prepared the way for the bridegroom, but he also prepared the way for the bride to meet her groom. That's the people of God. Through the ministry of purification, which was baptism for John. That's how he prepared God's people. That is why his baptizing ministry was based on repentance, symbolizing purification of sin. But John knew full well that he would not cleanse them completely from their sin. Though his disciples didn't know this, he did. Joy is here because Jesus is here. In verse 30, his final words in the gospel are critical. This is the last time we see John the Baptist in the gospel of John. So simple yet so profound. It was never about him. It was about fulfilling the divine mandate as we see here must, he must increase, I must decrease. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 7, one must be born again. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. It is God's predetermined plan. We, like John, John must decrease. Jesus must come first. Now in this role, John decreases in order to receive him from the one who increases. John's role is done. 
Now Jesus stands as the only testimony to the Father. Jesus offers a better baptism. He is also a better witness. Jesus, uh, John departs from the story. No more need to be known about him. Jesus is here. And that's why Jesus is a greater witness than John. Final section, part four. This is now the gospel writer's commentary or the gospel writer's summary of all this glorious uh, issues and, and, and themes that have come across the gospel. The closing of chapter 3 is, is glorious from verses 31 through 36. Let me just read that to you once more. It's, it's beautifully written. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to, to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It's glorious. It is John the evangelist's attempt to pull all the major themes found in this wonderful chapter. He does so by once again pointing us to Christ. He is greater, better, and he alone is truth. John summarizes for us the reason for Jesus. After this, no one should be confused what to do with Jesus. In verses 31 through 32, the supremacy of Jesus is compared. It's highlighted for us in John's role, the Baptist, and Jesus' role. We see these words come up in, in these two verses, above, heaven, below, earth. Uh, above in heaven points us to Jesus. Below, earth points us to John the Baptist. Therefore, Jesus is above all. What we ultimately see is the greater comparison between Jesus as the God-man and John's humanity, his finiteness. He is only a man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. You remember what John chapter 1 verse 1 says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the greatest comparison. Jesus was God. John the Baptist died. He was beheaded. And he ceased to exist here on earth. Jesus continues forever. Jesus has a greater authority, a greater message. And that's why all the people were going to his baptism. John was fine with that because that is precisely whom John bore witness to. In verse 32, we see, as, uh, we see Jesus as the first-hand witness to the Father because he comes from heaven. Something John was not because he was on earth and needed it to be revealed to him. Jesus is the better source of truth. What he says about heaven, the way of salvation, religious systems, and God, the Father, is completely true because he comes from heaven. This isn't just a simple man preaching some gospel. This isn't John the Baptist. 
This is Jesus' first-hand account about heaven and the way to salvation. Jesus is willing to reveal these truths from the Father to the people, but the problem is people are not willing to listen. The world's ideology clashes with that of Jesus. Why? Because the world, as we've been reading, hates God. Because it loves darkness. Even simple Sunday mornings, friends, I know it's difficult to watch and listen to the word at home. And there's just so many other forms of entertainment right now. There might be like five of you guys watching and, and everyone else is either sleeping or just doing something else entertaining. The world's ideology with Jesus just clashes the lord's day sunday has become oh it's my beach day it's it's my exercise day it's my day with my family it's the day that i get to enjoy and rest from all of life's preoccupations when in reality it should be the lord's day it should be a day to honor our heavenly father through jesus christ verse 33 but those who believe Here's the contrast. Are those that have faith. And this faith allows them to seal that the words of Christ are truth. It is a seal of ownership. When we read that they seal it, it's because they've owned it. This means that the faith that has made them believe that this truth comes from heaven and it is the ultimate truth. That's why when they ask you, how do you know that the word of God is true? Why do you believe in Jesus? It aren't all things true? It, faith gives us the certainty that everything we read about Christ in his word and everything that he has said is true. And we could to stamp it and seal it as our very own. But that only happens through faith. If you don't have faith, you could be like, mm, well, uh, some of it is good. I mean, most of it is moral. There's some good things here, but uh, no. Faith seals the truth. And therefore, we have this because it was gifted to us. In verse 32, if you go back, Jesus bears witness. This is a present tense verb, which means... He continues. He not only bore witness, he continues to bear witness through the Holy Spirit. That's why verse 34 through 35, Jesus is the ultimate witness to God because he is the certified revealer of truth. His words are certified because they are God's. Jesus' credentials speak for themselves. In verse 34 and 35, we see first he is full of the Spirit. God has gifted Jesus without measure the Spirit of God. Unlike the prophet or prophets that came before him that only received from the Spirit when they were called upon. Jesus has the complete package. It is why he stands in the synagogue and grabs the scroll of Isaiah and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. By consequence, we are partakers of the Spirit in Christ. The same Spirit that rose him from the dead. As Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ 
our Lord. In verse 35, we read that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is his second credential. Everything is given to him from the Father. And this is why we believe in his testimony. Now the final verse is of utter importance here. The final verse leaves us with only two options. What does one do with Jesus? Well, you either receive him or you reject him. One's eternity is at stake here, however. First, we can receive his wonderful testimony as truth by faith that Jesus Christ was sent by God to reveal his way of salvation. He shed his own blood in our place in order to rid us of our sins, do that internal purification, not just on the outside. Therefore, we are required to believe in him to have eternal life. The full benefits of heaven are immediately given to us at this moment. It's heaven's greatest gift. It's not found in retail. Option two, and I want you to pay close attention, my friends, as we get the musicians to come up to the front. Option two is rejection. We can also reject him. Rejection here is placed with the words disobedience or those who do not obey. Not obeying God, God's word about Jesus is treason against heaven. This is God's only way, faith in Jesus Christ. To not believe is to remain in your sins and have God's wrath remain upon you. The wrath of God shows us God's justice and righteousness. He is furious against evil. A God who is not furious against evil is a moral monstrosity. Therefore, to reject God's Son is the greatest evil there is and bears upon it the consequence of God's wrath. Rejection is not simply a faith in something else. Rejection, or, or it's not just simply di di differing in faith. Oh, I believe something else. I believe something else. It is complete rejection against God's truth. Those who reject will go to hell because they have committed the greatest evil against God. Therefore, they are worthy of God's wrath. The great preacher J.C. Ryle says, We can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high thoughts about Christ can never love him too much, trust him too implicitly, lay too much weight upon him, and speak too highly in his praise. He is worthy of all honor that we can give him. He will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that he is all in our hearts on earth. That's why the only words I have for you, my friend, is come to Christ. Mm -hmm.